0: it was my neck hurt and it also felt like it was sinking down into my shoulders and you know really my head was falling off internally broadcasting from the west coast
1: here's evan weiss hi jeff Uh, welcome to the show how are you hi evan thanks you know i'm doing pretty well tell me about you
0: and what is chronic fatigue syndrome oh gosh okay that is a (laughs) Very good question, and to answer it would probably take, I don't know, like uh, 10 years. A long time. Yeah, so yeah. I, so, so I'll convince it, uh, condense it as, as well as I can here, let's see.
1: Well, how, how, how about we do this? How about you tell me your story, and then within the story you could tell us what uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is.
0: Okay, so when it comes to my story, I came down with a mystery illness, um, was ultimately diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, And it has another name. The other name is myalgic encephalomyelitis. So you have this, you know. I'm not going to pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. It's a a mouthful. Um, And so, you know, we're told, okay, you have this chronic fatigue syndrome. There's no known underlying cause. We don't know why. There's no cure. You know, 95% of people that have it, they stay ill for life. Uh, Congratulations, and we're sorry. So... Well,
1: Jeff, how how did it start? I mean, how did you notice there were, uh, did you have symptoms? Were you at work? or Were you doing something? You noticed certain things? How did it start?
0: Yeah, so I, uh, it started with a viral infection and Hmm. uh, I just never got better after the viral infection. It's like the fever got a bit better, but my energy level recovering, you know, after recovering from the acute virus, my energy level was probably 50% or less of what it had been before. And I also noticed I couldn't think quite as well. I was slower mentally. <laughs> and uh, just mental effort and physical effort would just, I'd have this payback reaction where, let's say I went to the gym like I had used to do before the virus. Well, now going to the gym, I couldn't pump iron as hard. But the worst part was for days after the gym workout, I would be exhausted and uh sort of had mental fog as well. And it was very puzzling at the time.
1: And this happened uh,
0: during one week, two weeks, couple of days, years? You know, it's it started pretty acutely. Like just after the virus, bam, there it was. But it lasted okay. for years and years and years. And it just oh, got years. worse. Oh, yeah. And it just got worse and worse over the course of years. And how old were you when this first happened? I, I was in my 20s. And um, okay. I was in grad school. And... It just uh, it sidelined me, and so, so that's
1: the worst time to have
0: something like this happen to you. Yeah, 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 not good timing. And uh, so I eventually became bedridden. I just pushed myself through the exhaustion, and became bedridden. And then I knew I was screwed. I mean, you know, okay, I have this thing that no doctor can figure out. I went to doctor after doctor after doctor. So it, was, it
1: wasn't a metabolic issue? It wasn't hypothyroidism or anemia or any other stuff?
0: No. I was tested for all those things, like really, really thorough testing for all the known things like, yeah, just like hypothyroidism, anemia, you know, and um, leukemia, <laughs> pituitary tumor, all kinds of different different medical investigations, and, and nothing came up.
1: Because I know a lot of people, stigmatize people who have had conditions like this where it's an invisible chronic health problem. And people usually don't believe them like, oh, that's not real. We can't find anything. And so, and so that was, I'm assuming that's your, that was your frustration that you wanted to find out what was actually wrong with you. And the medical community really couldn't, couldn't find anything wrong with you.
0: Yes. I, I wanted more than anything else to get better. And not only were they failing at that, the medical community was failing at that. They also were stigmatizing me and telling me i had anxiety and depression and Classic. that i was physically healthy.
1: What was that moment that you decided, hey, i need to really figure out what's going on with me and and you kind of you started doing the research on like when when was that all, that that moment?
0: You know, it's probably a bunch of little moments, but it crystallized into this singular drive. You know, here and there i would do some online research trying to figure out what it was, but you know, after having been stigmatized over and over, nothing was found on imaging and lab work. That's when it just like, this was my life purpose, was to get my life back. And that's when I just devoted myself to figuring it out.
1: And, and so what did you figure out? How did you find out what was actually wrong with you?
0: Uh, well, so at first, I combed through a bunch of different theories, like a bunch of sort of hypotheses about chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, you know, you, you know, I looked at like are there metabolic reasons? That was one avenue of inquiry. Another was okay. It started fibromyalgia is another one, sort of, kind of like in that vein. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overlap right. with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, syndrome but I didn't really meet the fibro criteria. I met the chronic fatigue syndrome criteria better. So I, you know, I I was able to discard the right. fibro as its own sort of rabbit hole. Yeah, but I looked at post viral issues, which with current day, with, you know, COVID now, there's actually a lot of overlap between long COVID and what I went through after my viral infection. Um, Oh, it's what, what they call long haulers or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a long haulers and, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of similarities with the long haulers and what I went through at my post viral, you know, illness, but okay. back to like, when I was trying to figure out what, what my illness was, I, I, I thought, okay, it started with a viral infection. Therefore, is it, an immunological problem, right? Is my immune system screwed up? Is it coming from there? Right? So I I explored a lot of different underlying causes to try to figure out exactly what it was. And, you know, I I had, I, I, in the process, I gained a lot of scientific knowledge and a lot of medical knowledge, but I still wasn't sure what was going on with me until I started looking across community. So two things happened that helped me really discover what was up. The first was I started looking across community. So I was in the chronic fatigue syndrome community forums and scientific literature, and I noticed there was an overlap with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome community, the connective tissue community. I started looking at these other groups of patients, and I saw all these commonalities here in terms of my own experience, their experiences. In fact, sometimes we had the exact same illness but one person was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome while another person was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or say, postural orthostatic tachycardia. In other words, they were using the same, they are taking the same symptoms and giving them different words and different diagnoses. So you have all these patients split up into categories that are perhaps artificial. Right. So once I saw the category problem, I was incredibly lucky that my neck started hurting at the exact same time, right? it's like okay how how could a terrible aching neck be lucky well it was because it led me to investigate my neck as part of the problem and it turned out in fact that the problem was really my skull where my skull meets my neck was unstable and that that was responsible for the awful illness you know the exhaustion being bedridden etc really from there yeah it, it How was so okay so basically if your skull and your upper neck is unstable your okay. brainstem can end up being bent our brainstem is like really really important it's like the information superhighway of the human body in many ways right. yeah it controls our heart rate it, can, it helps control our respiration our breathing it also you know, we have a lot of nerves that exit that area of the body, including the vagus nerve, which is responsible. For heartbeat and all that stuff, right? Yeah, 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 and immune, even our immune system can malfunction when the vagus nerve is malfunctioning. It, you know, there's this complex coordination of bodily responses that basically depend on that area of your body working well physically.
1: One day you got this, this neck pain, and, and you've never had it before, and that's how you discovered
0: what was actually going on, correct? Correct. It was my neck hurt, and it also felt like it was sinking down into my shoulders. And, you know, really, my head was falling off internally. And it's, <laughs> so basically, you have these patients where their head's falling off, and nobody knows it, and they're told that they're crazy. And, and- it, Now, is this a congenital, or is this uh, due to an injury? You know, it's sort of a blend. It's congenital in the sense that you have to have a vulnerability to it in order for it to happen without an injury. So I didn't have any acute injury that made this happen. Um, it's just, so how, how, how did
1: the virus play a role in this? Son?
0: So there are different ideas. The one I suspect is the virus weakened my connective tissue, that, that I had an underlying connective tissue vulnerability. And, you yeah. know. Connective tissues like ligaments, you know, right. all kinds of things in our body are made up of connective tissue. I think the viral infection triggered um, my connective tissue to become compromised. And you'll see this happen in others. And there's actually some science behind it. When our bodies fight a viral infection, we can release certain chemicals that can degrade our connective tissue. And so I think that virus was the trigger, but I had an underlying genetic vulnerability to this happening to me is there is there a name for this for the connective tissue there there is but okay so one known connective tissue disorder that has a name is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome it's just a known connective tissue disorder okay okay problem in my case and in the case of some others is we don't meet the criteria for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome but we have all the characteristics of you know our heads fall off spontaneously after a viral infection, right? So if you look at the definition of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and uh, you can stop me if I'm going into too much detail here, I mean, I...
1: No, no, please
0: continue. Okay, so if you look at the definition of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, to get diagnosed with it, part of the criteria is they look at how much nine, how how hypermobile your body is, but they only look at nine joints in the entire body. You know, okay. So the human body arguably has 360 joints. I mean, scholars disagree on the exact definition of a joint, but 360 is one accepted number, okay, in in the scientific world. Again, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome diagnosis is based on nine joints out of 360. Okay, and so I'm like, okay, let's look a little more closely at this. Why did they choose these nine joints? Well, it turns out they the nine joints and the criteria are based on the easiest joints in the human body for somebody to measure. So it's like, okay, your thumb, your elbow, right? None of the joints that mattered for me are in that criteria. So, you know, my skull was falling off. The joints of my skull and my neck were awful. Well, that doesn't count toward a diagnosis. Uh, It turns out I learned later, my shoulders are hypermobile, but because they never fully dislocated, then I don't meet the you know I don't have points toward the criteria. In other words, the criteria is quite strict, quite narrow. Was developed in a really, in my opinion, lazy way. At least the nine joint criteria was lazy. The good news is there's been a lot of recent scholarly work on refining uh, the criteria for these disorders. I, I think that as the years go by and more work is done, there'll be a lot more sophistication when it comes to identifying. Patients, you know, people who are vulnerable to these things. I I think we have a long way to go, but there are a lot of really smart people on the research now.
1: Jeff, is there a cure for this? Did you get treatment for it or is there a therapy?
0: Yeah, I got a a neurosurgery that screwed my head on straight. Huh. What do (laughs) you mean by that? No, I just need to get my head screwed on straight, right? So, yeah, um, (laughs) yeah. Um, I mean, so what they
1: do? They just open up like the back back part of your your neck and and uh, you know just
0: screwed it on. Yeah, they they <laughs> they put a they sliced me right down from the back of my skull down to my mid neck. Okay. And then they uh, the neurosurgeon screwed you know, screws in my skull and my first two neck vertebrae, some rods, some bone grafts, sewed me back up.
1: So was this done under? So. Under like, what pretense was this done under? Was it done under like, there, uh, to correct your, your tendons, or was it to correct oh, I know. It was,
0: uh, yeah, the diagnosis was cranio instability. And, oh, uh, okay. So there is a diagnosis for this. Oh, just, very much so. It's, it's just, just hard. very hard to come to it. Yes, that's, a, that's the exact problem. Yep. and And they don't recognize, medicine didn't recognize that some people with chronic fatigue syndrome actually have this as the underlying cause. So yeah, it, craniocervical instability is, is typically underdiagnosed. And how can how do people
1: diagnose it? What, what techniques
0: or tools do they use to to diagnose it? Uh many different ones. Usually, it's diagnosed through imaging such as uh, an MRI or digital motion X ray. Uh, more so, the more sophisticated ways of testing for it are um, things like invasive cervical traction, where uh, basically. Position and pull up on your head with a little bit of traction and see if the patient feels better and if their bones align better, if their skulls better, and that's that's another way of testing for it.
1: Hmm. That's a very interesting story. I mean, uh, like how do you how do you distinguish people that have chronic fatigue syndrome that's due to due to other things and and those who who have your issue?
0: I'd say if you want to distinguish those groups, you would need to take people with chronic fatigue syndrome and test them for my issue mm-hmm. and if they don't have my issue then that kind of answers your question
1: are there any visual telltale signs that someone might have that can someone look in the mirror towards the back of their head and kind of see like a, a disalignment or a change or or something like that
0: ah uh, you know it tends to be invisible although some people their head tilts forward they have like a forward head posture but that's you know a lot of people have that yeah that don't have craniocervical instability. So it's really hard with a visual tell. But I think I should add, I also had a tethered spinal cord. And I think that was related to my craniocervical instability. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having two surgeries to fix the problem. The first one was the fusion I told you about where they screwed my head on straight. That solved all my symptoms. But four months after that surgery, my legs started going numb my feet started hurting and tingling and just got really, really weak feet and legs. And I knew what it was this time around. I immediately knew what that was. It was a tethered spinal cord, which people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are likelier to get craniocervical instability, tethered spinal cord, and sometimes they occur together. So I knew what was up this time around and I had a surgery for that and all my symptoms went away. But here's the catch. When you asked about visual science, well, for CCI, there aren't very many, but if any, really. But for a tethered spinal cord, there are. So you'll see some people with a tethered cord have a, what's called a sacral dimple, which is like a little indentation in their lower lumbar down near their butt. Okay. Um, they have this indentation. Other people have a, like a tuft of hair at their lower back right above their butt. And, and so you can sort of spot subtle signs here. Interesting. And – Yeah, and and a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome are now looking at their butts, (laughs) frankly, to see if they have these tethered cord signs, visual signs. And, you know, it's been interesting being part of these patient communities where, I mean, quite a few do. And so it's sort of this patient-led movement of self-identifying our own illnesses because nobody in the medical community is going to do it for us. Not at this point in medical history.
1: Does anyone in your family have symptoms similar to the ones you had or or no
0: yes my dad so yeah and and these things do tend to be genetic but he managed to make it into his 60s before he became pretty bad he's had a like subtle cranioservical instability symptoms for maybe since his 30s and 40s but it was very subtle for him Hmm. uh he didn't have the dramatic you know downfall that i did
1: so so he did have some symptoms, but they weren't as severe as yours.
0: Yes. I mean, he wasn't bedridden. He was able to work. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, I mean, when you said you were bedridden, you were bedridden for what,
0: like a day, two days, three days, months, weeks? Oh, God, no. I was bedridden for two and a half years. Whoa. Now, during, yeah, during some of that time, I was merely housebound, okay? So I could get out of my bed to use the bathroom. So, But that's still pretty bedridden. Um, I could only get out of bed, use the bathroom, and I would have to lie down in bed the rest of the day. And What,
1: what, did, what did you feel that, that kept you in your
0: bed? Bone-crushing exhaustion and, and often an inability to move beyond just a little bit. So let's say I would get up to use the bathroom, right? Get out of bed, stand up, walk. In my case, I, I was so ill that once you're standing up your entire body is telling you to collapse and there were times that I just collapsed onto the floor and you know in retrospect it was this complex neurological problem right but at the time what you feel is like a wave of exhaustion like when you might have a normal flu and you try to run five miles as, as a sprint that's how it feels just <laughs> It would feel that way just for me getting up out of my bed, and the bad the worst part was, like if I showered, let's say if I managed to shower, I would be flat in bed for days, unable to even wow. get up and shower again. I mean,
1: did you? Yeah. Did you have uh, palpitations, low blood pressure, high blood pressure, things like that?
0: Yes. Yes, I had. Um, in fact, a condition called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where when I would sit up or stand up but especially when i would stand up my heart rate would skyrocket it it would go unmedicated it would go up to the 160s i finally got on some meds and it limited my heart rate would go up to the 140s but still you know you stand up and your heart rate shoots up to the 140s and uh my blood pressure too would bottom out it would go it would sink really low as my heart rate climbed but then over the course of my illness my blood pressure started climbing in with my heart rate climbing. So so I had like different flavors of dysfunction right. as the years went by, but if, very dysfunctional heart rate and blood pressure, yes.
1: Now, uh, did these uh, did these symptoms get better or worse with like t- temperature changes or humidity changes?
0: Always worse. Although the, the one exception was cold temperatures made me more comfortable, but my symptoms were bad regardless, but cold temperatures made me Better able to suffer a bit less, I should say.
1: You have a website where, where you write, uh, you wrote about your story. Are you working on projects? Or are you working with, with other people who have the same condition? Or are you trying to bring more awareness to this?
0: Yes, in fact, uh, I now work as a consultant to people with chronic illness. Um, you know, part of what I do is I help educate people on these types of conditions, you know, cranial instability, tethered cord, But I also am sort of um, an investigator. The way I sort of figured out my own case, I apply that type of thinking to other people's mystery illnesses, and so. True, you're kind of of like house. Yeah, actually, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I have to watch out for is my lower neck wobbles a bit. My lower neck's a bit unstable, the ligament's there. So I have to maintain a lot of muscle all over my body so that my neck is strong and the rest of me is strong. But um, as for like being exhausted or having heart rate fluctuations, no, all, all of that is gone. It's like, it's kind of like having a second chance at life, really. Wow, for years bedridden. I mean, how did you work? How did you support yourself? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I was completely disabled and dependent on my family financially and physically. Oh. There, I was so ill that I, a lot of the time I couldn't bathe. Like, I I was bedridden. My family had to wheel me in a wheelchair into the bathroom. And bathe me they did the manual labor of bathing me and then they would return me to my bed did did you uh, get depression or you know what I I don't think I was depressed if you look at the circumstances I think I was not depressed given how awful the circumstances were I I was somehow still motivated to figure it out and and get better Um, so I don't really think that's depression I think it was just
1: you were just challenged, and you wanted to overcome your challenge. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's, yeah, that's good. I was trapped by my own body. Right.
1: Really. Yeah. 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 It's it's um, and never knowing if it's going to get worse. That's I guess that was.
0: Yeah. No, the prognosis was terrible. Really. I mean, you, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome at that level, and even at a mild level, uh, only five percent of people are said to ever get better, and nobody knows why. Right. So there, there's literally no known cause, no known cure. At the time I had that illness, that's what I was told. That's what the entire medical community was saying, and they still are, frankly.
1: And did your parents ever say, "Come on, Jeff, you're full
0: of shit. Get a job." At first, when it was mild, yeah. When it was mild, they were like, uh, "Come on, you're just a bit depressed. Are you lazy?" <laughs> but as, as you know, as it got worse, I think it was really, really obvious that something was really wrong there. Oh, that's good. You
1: had a, you had a supportive uh, parents, and uh, they were able to help you out during your uh, your journey.
0: Yeah. I did. I would just say that the role of the internet is like a double-edged sword when it comes to medical things. Right. Um, you know, people sometimes go on the think, internet think, and they read- I think I'm going to check my neck after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the problem, right? People go on the internet and they, they read something or they hear something and they think, okay, I have that, right? Oh no. You know, so that's one problem is that information can be too available or- there can even be misinformation, right? But one role that the internet played, at least for me, is back when I was so damn ill, I was better at I could go online and, and look up medical research articles. You know, I, I could go online and look at other patients and sort of categorize, categorize their symptoms and, and look at things uh, between patient communities. So I think uh, the technology allowed for this type of Medical jigsaw puzzle solving, you know, you can you can devour the science But devouring other patients stories is, is so helpful in seeing patterns and then you sort of bridge the science with the You know the the field of patients that are basically sharing their data with you um, As part of the community.
1: Wow, and how long was the recovery time for, uh, for your operation?
0: It was compared to being sick like that. It was very easy. So let's see I, I had the fusion surgery January of 2018 after surgery you know I slept for, non-stop it seemed for like two weeks and then slowly you know gained back some energy over time and I mean compared to being ill the surgery the surgical recovery for me was nothing uh, but for some people it's harder than others I, I seem to have a pretty easy recovery did you gain weight or what did you do to um, keep your weight down if anything um, so I actually lost a lot of weight when I was bedridden because yeah, my hunger drive went away and then there were also times when I just couldn't eat. I didn't have the energy to eat. So at one point we started making me uh, protein shakes and we added all this, my family added all this olive oil to the shakes just so I could have some calories and, um, I drink them through a straw. I wasn't quite, I wasn't tube fed. I mean. Some people with this condition end up tube-fed, right? I, I was headed there, but I, I never made it there, fortunately. Right. But I, I got really thin at point. This is an amazing story, and I
1: think it's a testament to what a human being can do when, uh, when uh, they're motivated and, and take up a challenge and uh, do the research and, and, and really, really, really you know, just, just work on finding out what's wrong with them. And um, I think it's a great story. And where can people find more information about you, Jeff?
0: They can find out a lot more at my website, um, mechanicalbasis.org. Um, and if they would like to work directly with me, you know, if, if somebody has a medical issue that they'd like help solving, um, they could go to my consulting services at explorewithjeff.com.
1: Okay, well, thank you for being on the, on the show, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, haven't If you made it this far, you're truly a sage. And we want to thank you for listening to True Stories in Science. Like, follow, and subscribe to support
0: this show.